Let us pray. Oh God, we come before your scripture, listening for a word from you. We pray that the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, what do we do with a parable like this? Now, on the surface, it seems, it seems kind of simple. Yet the more you dig, the more convicting it becomes. The temptation for us preachers is to just preach an easy sermon on the modern English word talent. That is, a personal ability like singing or playing the piano, electrical work perhaps, or baking pies important talents that we share with one another in the message of the sermon would be use your talents for Jesus. Don't bury them in the ground. But what happens if you don't use your talents for Jesus? Maybe you're too shy to sing in public or your job is so demanding and what with the kids, you never have time to engage in your uh, talented pursuits for God or for yourself. Will you, like the third slave, be thrown into some special hell designed for the lazy, talented people of this world? (coughs) Well, take comfort, because the word in the biblical text this morning that is translated talent has nothing to do with our English word of talent. Jesus is talking about money, not pie baking, although pie baking sounds a lot better. But that's not really that much more comforting either. But what an appropriate time to read a story of a parable about money. We just approved a new budget, right, Gary? And this time of year is when we need you to put more talents in the plate so we can end the offering strong. I know what you're thinking. Please don't let this be a sermon on money either. We'll increase our giving so long as you don't preach about money. Deal. (laughs) But, well, you know, this parable... It's not really about giving either. It's not about using your talents for God, and it's not about giving your money to God. So what is it about? Maybe you saw on Facebook this week, or even some of the morning shows picked up the story. There is this home for sale in Beverly Hills. It's the most expensive home currently on the market. It comes at, oh, around $195 million. And for that much money, you can have a living space of 53,000 square feet, which includes 12 bedrooms and 23 bathrooms. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wouldn't 22 bathrooms have been enough? But when you're that 23rd person and they're all filled, you would have wished you put in that extra bathroom. Now, the master bedroom alone is 5,000 square feet, the size of most reasonably sized mansions. <laughs> Outside, there's a 25-acre estate with a working vineyard, a spare house just in case, a spa, and a 120-foot-long pool. Such lavishness. A home built for someone like the master In this text, this is where he lives. He's that kind of rich. Now, here's what you need to know about his fortune. He's handing out talents like they're quarters, but a talent is no small amount of money. 
Biblical financial experts tell us that one talent is worth roughly 6,000 denarii. Now, that should clear it up, right? Well, one denarius is a day's wage for slaves like the ones in our text. One talent is equivalent to about 20 years worth of working. One. And he's given him out five and three equivalent to almost $2 million per talent in today's economy. This master, he's not some simple, above-average, wealthy person. This man is absurdly wealthy. He's the 1% of the one percenters, a money-grubbing, absentee landlord who has built an empire by taking advantage of other people's hard work. He sows where he does not reap. It's a rigged game he's playing, and he gives all the risk in his enterprise to the slaves. They're the ones who do the work. He enjoys the profit. And they're afraid of this man. Who wouldn't be afraid of such a man? He sees nothing but dollar signs when he looks at someone's face. Now, two of the slaves, they get it. They know their life is at stake, and so they become as ruthless as their master is. So they can just give him a few more million-dollar coins to throw into Ebenezer Scrooge's purse. Now, the third slave, well, he gets it too. He knows how his master is, and he even has the audacity to say it to his face. And yet, knowing how his master is, what does he do? He acts in the opposite way from the master. Money is to be saved, he says. You don't want to risk disappointing the master. He could have at least put the money in the bank, he's told, and earn interest, by the way, a practice forbidden by Jews of his day. Instead, he takes no risk. He fears the master, and so he sits on the talent buried in the sand. And in the end, does it pay off? Well, he receives the same fate that he was trying to avoid. Now, let me tell you what you're thinking right now. This ruthless, money-grubbing, people-abusing master with a little m. Now, didn't, isn't he supposed to represent the big m master? Isn't this guy supposed to be God? In this parable, that's what we do with parables. We read them and we try to find out who's God and who's who we are. Now, for some, yeah, the match is perfect. God is a lot like this master to be feared. And we're given a job to do until Jesus returns. And if you don't increase Jesus's harvest, well, there will be hell to pay. But such a comparison of God to this master really ignores the entire story that Matthew has been telling us. Maybe you can remember way back to last Advent when Matthew talked of Jesus coming and said that his name would be Emmanuel, which is God with us. And how does God act when God is with us? Well, Matthew tells us that Jesus goes throughout the land, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming good news and curing every disease, every sickness among the people. When he teaches them on the mountain, he tells them, do not repay evil with evil, but evil with good. And if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. When it comes to treasure, 
What should you do? Well, don't store it up, treasures on earth. But store up treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To the tax collector Levi, whose trade relied also on abusive financial practices, he said that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. To the ones who would place heavy religious burdens on the shoulders of the people, Jesus said the Sabbath is made for people, not people for the Sabbath. Come to me, Jesus said, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for my burden, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, if we keep reading in chapter 25, Jesus will tell this story of the end of time when the Son of Man will separate the sheep from the the goats and to the sheep. He says, come, enter into my Father's joy, for when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. Whatever you do to the least of these, Jesus said, to the very people that the Master has been stepping on and exploiting, whatever you do to them, you do to me. Now, this is Jesus. This is what Jesus taught. This master in this text sounds nothing like this. He's the opposite of this. So, what do we do with him? What do we do with this parable? Maybe we should rewind and just preach that sermon on baking pies for Jesus. But here it is. This is what we have. Before we throw the parable out into the outer darkness... Maybe we should take a fresh look. Now, these two slaves, they, they know who their master is. They know his character. And as diabol- diabolical as he is, they respond accordingly. They act like he acts. The third slave, well, they know how he is too. And yet knowing how he is, they refuse to act. He refuses to act as the master acts. And so I was asking the question... Do we know the character of our master, the big M master? Do we respond accordingly? An absurd amount of grace and love has been given to us. But do we act as if our master is the master in this text, the ruthless, disappointed master ready to toss us out at a moment's notice into the outer darkness? Do we treat church as if it's a business to preserve the status quo, holding up traditions, or do we follow the example of Christ who goes and speaks boldly, prophetically, to the religious and political traditions of his day? Do we treat buildings and budgets, all these gifts that God has given us, as resources to be buried and preserved, or do we follow the example of our master who risks all these gifts in beautiful ministry to his community. The church is being torn apart right now over debates, over sexuality, asking who does God love and who does God welcome in? What kind of master do we serve? Is it one who has showered us with love, even those who we know we don't deserve it? And yet he heaps upon us mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, saying, come, come, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Now this, this is our master, not this scoundrel from the text, but this, the one who loves, the one who gives of himself for us. 
This is Jesus. And our master has placed an absurd gift of unconditional, selfless love into our hands, asking us, what will we do with it? Do we keep it to ourselves? Or will we risk it all to multiply and multiply the love of God in our world? And the more risk of love we take, the more abundance of love we create so that when our master returns, we will be surrounded with love, surrounded by all the people we've gathered together and welcomed in, surrounded by all the people whose lives we have saved, taking risk for the least of these. And our master will look at us and will say to us, well done, good and trustworthy servants. Enter into the joy of the master. Amen. Let us sing our hymn of communion. Let us talents and tongues employ as we approach this table of joy.